Well, good morning. Would you uh, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews and chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the last three verses, verses 14 to 16. Uh, as you turn there, I just want to say what a privilege, a joy, and an honor it is uh, to be with you, dear saints, and to bring God's Word to you. Uh, my dear wife and I spent many years uh, as members of Emmanuel. All our children were born uh, while we were at Emmanuel, and uh, our entire Christian identity and so much of who we are was shaped and formed by this dear body of believers. And it, it, I, I, this is an unspeakable privilege uh, to encourage you with God's word this morning. Hebrews, if you would uh, join me in prayer uh, one more time. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, our gracious God, we come to you hungry, so needy, and we ask that you would give us ears to hear eyes to see, a heart that understands, that we would behold your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in the Scriptures this morning, in all his glory, by the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever had the experience where you see someone from afar, you begin to form a perception of them in your mind, and then when you get up close and get to know them better, they're entirely different than what you thought. I've had that happen a few times. You know, I see somebody, very charismatic person as they speak, and then I come to talk with them and they just are you know, kind of cold, socially awkward, or maybe the other way around. It's someone seems very unapproachable, and then you find them to be warm, loving, gentle as you talk with them. Uh, we all form mental perceptions of people, and often those perceptions can be quite far from reality. Well, it should come as no surprise that one of the foremost persons that we reinvent in our own minds is the Lord Jesus Christ. So some of us have this idea somehow that, you know, when life is going well, when I am faithful in my quiet times, when I'm involved in serving the church, when I'm growing in my understanding of God's word, Jesus is near to me, and he's my friend, and he's my support and my guide. But when life is harder or not going so well, when the depression hits or the darkness seems heavy, or you feel like you're wandering and drifting, well, Jesus is far away and he's displeased with me, and I can't approach him. Yes, yes, our, our theology tells us better than that, but that's how we feel deep down, isn't it? If we're honest with ourselves. Sometimes we get this idea that Jesus is the holy, spotless son of God. He's far, high, and above, lifted up, and he can never really understand my pain or my struggles. Well, if that's you, dear friend, then it's my privilege this morning to look at Hebrews 4 with you and to show you that Jesus is utterly different than you think. Jesus, the Son of God, is compassionate and tender-hearted. He is able and willing to help you 
no matter what you are facing. He is our great high priest and he is the priest that you and I so desperately need. And it's my prayer that as we look at the text this morning that our hearts, that your hearts would be deeply comforted by the heart of Christ, that we would hold on to him and have confidence to draw near to him. So in our text today, uh, the author focuses on a central theme in this letter, the theme of Jesus being our great high priest. He has touched on this earlier in Hebrews. Now this theme will take center stage. And our text, before I read it to you, I just want to tell you it has two commands supported by two reasons, all right? Two truths about Jesus as our high priest. So the two commands are that we must hold fast to our confession and that we must draw near with confidence. And then the two truths are our great high priest has passed through the heavens and our great high priest sympathizes with our weaknesses, right? So we're going to look at Command number one, then we'll look at the two truths, and then we'll look at command number two. That's my outline, simple. So let's read the text. Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So command number one, we must hold fast our confession. That's right there at the end of verse 14, you see, let us hold fast our confession. We must hold firmly, securely to the truth that we've believed to the truth that we have confessed of Jesus as the Son of God and the only Savior for sinners like us. You might be familiar with the context of Hebrews. Uh, the letter to the Hebrews was, in fact, originally a sermon to the Hebrews. It was a sermon preached by a concerned pastor to a congregation of weary Christians. These believers were from a Jewish background. They were facing all kinds of suffering. They were facing persecution and affliction from the outside, pressure to compromise. They were growing weary and had begun to struggle on the inside. And many of them were tempted to abandon it all, to call it quits to be done with the suffering that the Christian life was bringing and to go back to their old way of life in Judaism. And in the midst of this suffering, the author of Hebrews, this concerned pastor, preaches to these weary saints, encouraging them to keep moving forward, to endure to the end. And the way to keep moving forward is by lifting their eyes upward to our Lord Jesus Christ on his throne. And the author takes them into one of the richest biblical and theological studies of the person and work of Christ in the entire New Testament. Why does he do that? Well, it's because looking at Jesus is the greatest source of comfort in the Christian life and the greatest source of motivation and encouragement to keep pressing on in the Christian life. 
He reminds them to hold on. He reminds us to hold on, hold fast to our confession by fixing our eyes on Christ. You know, several years ago, uh, I was at the T4G conference as a seminary student, and I remember this very distinctly, John Piper getting up to preach. It was the last session of the conference, and he was preaching on perseverance in the Christian life. And here was this uh, dear brother whom so many of us looked up to. Uh, he was 67, I believe, at the time. And he, as he opened his sermon, he said, when I think about the fact that I've been a Christian for 60 years, that I wake up each day and I still believe in the Lord Jesus after 60 years, I am amazed. I am amazed. Dear friend, if you are a Christian, if you woke up this morning believing, you are to be amazed. That's an amazing thing because you see the Christian life is not easy. It's a journey with many trials and temptations along the way. Just read Pilgrim's Progress. This is a hard road to walk. Many trials that could cause us to give up. Hardships that cause us to grow weary and discontent. Ever feel that sense of weariness? That sense that it's so hard just to take another step to go through another day when you wake up one day and realize that the Christian life is far different than you thought it would be? You know, Christianity in your late 30s and early 40s looks a lot different than in your early 20s. And you feel that, we feel that. And, and Hebrews, throughout the, this sermon, the author warns these believers. There are repeated warnings that punctuate Hebrews, where he's warning them not to turn away from Christ and of the disastrous consequences of abandoning our faith in Christ. But then right throughout Hebrews, there is much comfort. There is much comfort where the author keeps saying, chin up, chin up, eyes up, look at Jesus. It's this comfort of looking at Jesus that is our motivation to hold fast our confession. We can hold on by looking at him. So what does he say about Jesus that is our motivation to hold fast? Look again at verse 14. He says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And so that's the first reason the author of Hebrews gives us to hold fast our confession. He's given us this command, hold fast our confession. This is the first reason that he gives us. Jesus, our great high priest, has passed through the heavens. He is our great high priest. By saying that he's our high priest, is the author is telling us that Jesus is our mediator. He's our representative. He is the one who represents his people before God. He is the one who gives us access to God the Father. You might be familiar with the Old Covenant, and as you read the Old Testament, you'll see that God appointed this office in ancient Israel, the office of priesthood. And these men were to function as mediators between God and the people, offering sacrifices and prayer on behalf of the people and teaching God's law to the people. Well, the problem in the Old Covenant, as Hebrews makes very clear, is that all of these priests were flawed. They were sinful. They were mere finite men. They died 
They had to be replaced. And that old covenant could never bring perfection, could never bring the cleansing that we need, could never give us the access that we need. Only one man once a year for a brief moment in time had access into the immediate presence of God on the day of atonement. And here the author is telling us that Jesus is our, not just our high priest, he is our great high priest. He has fulfilled the office of the priesthood. He is far greater than any who has come before him. He is the son of God. Jesus, the Son of God, is our high priest. He is fully divine. God the Son, from all eternity, fully possesses the divine nature, and he is fully human, like us, took on flesh to ransom us, has made atonement for sinners, and gives us access, and he tells us here, this great high priest, this Son of God, this mediator for us, his people, has passed through the heavens. Jesus offered himself as the perfect sacrifice for sinners, poured out his blood. He rose from the dead, victorious, defeating Satan, sin, and death. And he ascended into heaven. He has made a way into God's heavenly throne room. He has blazed a trail into the eternal heavenly realm and here's the kicker, he has made that way for us to follow into the presence of God. The heavenly kingdom that is coming is our eternal home and Jesus will lead us home. So dear brothers and sisters, remember that. Are you weary from life in this sin-sick world? Well, this world is not our home. Jesus has passed through the heavens and he will lead us through all our sighing, through all our suffering, into glory. He has blazed that trail for us. And there's another aspect to him having passed through the heavens. Not only does his presence in heaven guarantee your future presence in heaven, but as the high priest who has passed through the heavens, he lives and makes intercession for us, his people, even now. Which is simply a way of saying this. Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is praying for you. Dear brother or sister, this morning when you woke up, Jesus was praying for you. Joel Beakey uh, tells us to picture this. He talks about the intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he says... Picture a clock and the seconds hand of a clock. And as it passes through each tick and talk, right? Tick, Jesus is praying for you. Tick, Jesus is praying for you. Tick, Jesus is praying for you. Even when the darkness does not lift. Even when you feel weak and weary even when you are being tempted more than you can bear, when it feels more than you can bear, the Son of God who died to save you lives to pray for you in the throne room of your Father. So I want to encourage you, dear friends, I know it's hard. I know things can get so hard. I know you feel tired and weary. 
I know that for many of you, following Jesus is costly, but He is worth it. He is so worth it. And we can hold fast our confession, hold firmly to the truth that we've believed till the end because our great high priest, Jesus, the son of God, has passed through the heavens where he will lead us and where he continues even now to pray for us. But we can still be tempted to think, right? Even in our present circumstances, sometimes our hearts are so skeptical, we can be tempted to think that this is of no help in our present situation. Well, he's the son of God. He's holy, perfect, sinless, exalted, divine. I'm lowly, wretched, weak, flailing, and a sinner. He's passed through the heavens far above all things at the right hand of God as ruler and Lord, and I'm here lonely, struggling, stumbling. How could he possibly help me? How could he possibly understand our struggles, our sorrows, our sin? That's how you begin to feel when you're struggling sometimes. And I'm sure the original readers of Hebrews, this church, these people, felt the same way because our author answers those questions in the very next verse, which leads to our second truth about Jesus, our high priest. So we saw the first command, we must hold fast our confession. We saw the first truth there that supports it, Jesus has passed through the heavens. Now we see the second supporting truth. Jesus, our high priest, sympathizes with our weaknesses. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And as you look at the word for there in the beginning of the verse, you can circle that if you want, that tells us that this supports what came before. So let us hold fast our confession because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. And then if you look at the next verse there in your Bibles, verse 16, the author says, let us then, or let us therefore with confidence draw near. So verse 16 also follows in light of what he just said in verse 15. So think of verse 15 like a slice of juicy steak between two slices of bread, right? This is a sandwich, the Hebrew sandwich, and, and this is the truth that supports the commands on either side. So we ought to pay attention to this. There are two assertions that the author is making here in verse 15. First, he tells us Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. And there's a double negative there. Do you see that? We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He, he's making it emphatic. Jesus is able to sympathize. And then he tells us how it is that Jesus is able to sympathize. So we come back to that false idea that we began with, right? When life is going well, when things are good, Jesus is for me, he's on my side, he's helping me. When life is going badly, he's far away, I don't have his help, things are hard and, and he is distant. And we begin to think the deeper my pain, the more alone I am. And I want to tell you this morning, nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. 
You know, there's a difference between pity and sympathy. Pity is somebody who is looking at your experience from the outside and says, I'm sorry you're going through that. Sympathy is someone who enters your suffering, enters your experience, and says, I'm with you in this. I am a sharer in this struggle. Jesus sympathizes with us. He is a co-sharer with us in our experience. His heart is moved for us. The Son of God is inwardly moved by our struggles. He is intimately concerned with our weakness, with our pain, with our sorrows, with our temptations. He feels our struggles. Dear believer, he deeply feels the pain that you are going through and he feels for you in your pain. Do you realize how tender-hearted, how compassionate, how merciful, how gracious, how loving is your Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ? He's the help of the helpless. He is powerful to those who are powerless. He is the sinless savior of sufferers and he is the suffering savior of sinners. His heart bleeds for you when you are suffering. His heart yearns for you when you are drifting, when you are struggling. His heart cares for you. He cares for you. He overflows with compassion for you when you are tempted. The more desperate your situation, the more overflowing is his compassion. What about our sin? What about my sin, you ask? Do you, do you think Jesus is put off from you because of your sin? You know, one of uh, our favorite shows for many years uh, has been AGT, America's Got Talent. Yeah, we don't live in America, but we appreciate the talent in America. <laughs> and, you know, we, have, we love watching the YouTube clips, and, and it's always fun, isn't it, when someone comes up and they seem inconspicuous and doomed to fail, and then they turn out this stellar performance that wows everybody, and they get the golden buzzer and all of that. I'm mean, sure you're familiar with some talent show or the other, and you have these expert judges, right? Uh, Simon Cowell, others who have made it big. They, they are, you know, kind of experts in this field. And sometimes what's really funny, the other type of clips I love to watch you know, is when someone comes up and they're just downright awful. Ever seen that? Right? You, and, and, you know, they, they come up and they're so bad, you go boom, 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 red, 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 bzz, you're out. Right? But sometimes, someone comes up and it's painful to watch. Right? Cringeworthy. And, and everybody knows what's going on. And, you know, maybe one judge will push his buzzer, but the others are kind of just tolerating this, cringing, making it through, painfully, all of their flaws are evident. You're cringing watching this. And sometimes you might feel that Jesus looks at us that way. He, he looks at us and it's cringeworthy, right? He sees all of the flaws, all of the sin, all of the weakness and failing. And he says, I'm just going to tolerate you, right? You, you feel, oh, thank God for his grace. He tolerates me. He bears with me. Well, that's often how we treat other believers who annoy us, isn't it? Well, he, he, he bears with my weaknesses. Jesus is putting up with a sinner like me. Friends, that's not how Jesus looks at you. He doesn't tolerate you. He loves you. Jesus is the spotless, 
holy, perfect Son of God. But even despite our sin, our imperfection, our flaws, He loves us. Even in our temptation, His heart is warm with compassion towards us. And you ask, how can that be? How is it that He loves us so? And the author tells us. You see, not only does he tell us that Jesus sympathizes with us, he also shows us how it is that the perfect spotless son of God can sympathize with us, is able to sympathize with us. Look at the second half of the verse. He says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is God. He is fully God. He is the Son of God. God the Son from all eternity, forever from eternity past, sharing in the divine nature, fully possessing the divine nature, infinite and holy. Jesus is also fully human. He took on flesh. He became fully human in every respect, like us, with weakness, sorrow, temptation, struggles, anguish, but without sin. He's been in our shoes. He knows what it's like to be us. I want to speak to the children this morning. Jesus knows what it's like to be a child. All of the struggles and the questions that you have, everything that goes on in your hearts, little children, Jesus knows because he's been there. He knows what it's like to be tempted. And so he is not merely like a doctor who prescribes a medicine and sends us home. No, Jesus is like a friend who puts his arm around you and says, I get it. I've been there. I know what that's like. I love you, and I'm with you. As Dane Ortland says in his brilliant work, Gentle and Lowly, he says, Jesus knows what it is to be thirsty, hungry, despised, rejected, scorned, shamed, embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused, suffocated, tortured, and killed, he knows what it is to be lonely. And to this we may add, he knows what it is like to be tempted. And the Savior who has never sinned tells us even in our temptation, I understand. I know what you're going through. I've been there. And I love you. And even now, our hearts can be cynical and we can say, well, Jesus has never been in my situation. Jesus was never married. He don't, doesn't know what it's like to have a difficult, hard marriage that you have to work on constantly. Jesus never had children. He doesn't know what it's like to face the struggle of parenting. He didn't know that he hadn't been through that. He doesn't know what it's like to have a rebellious child who won't listen. And so he can't understand. Well, dear friend, Jesus has been through much, much more. 
Think about the context of this letter. Think about the context of this sermon. These Christians were tempted to throw it all away and to give up their faith altogether. And the author tells them, Jesus knows what's that, what that's like. He has been tempted in that way. He has been tempted to abandon his divine mission. He was tempted and tried and tested in a way that no other human being in history ever has been. And he was yet without sin. His entire life was one of anguish, struggle, sorrow, temptation from every corner. You know, Ligon Duncan says, he talks about the emotional life of Jesus in the New Testament, in the Gospels. And he says, we see a complete array of emotions in Christ. But what we do not see, surprisingly, are the emotions of humor and lightheartedness. No doubt, I'm, I'm sure, our Lord Jesus Christ was a man of mirth and joy in many ways. But I think it's no mistake that we don't see humor lightheartedness. Here's, here's what Duncan says. He says, Jesus was a man who from his very earliest years was acquainted with grief and sorrow. He was a man who was never far away from the shadow of the cross cast over his own life. And so the emotions that are described of Christ in the New Testament, though they are tender and fully human, are predominantly emotions which we experience when we are in the greatest trials and temptations of our life. His entire life from birth, birth to death, anguish, sorrow, the shadow of the cross, all the way until the climax of his obedience and his suffering in the garden of Gethsemane, where he is preparing to take upon himself the wrath of God Almighty, the judgment due to sinners. And he was praying with such intensity under so much pressure that the blood vessels under his skin burst and he was sweating great drops of blood for you and I as he prayed, not my will, but yours be done still submitting to the Father, still submitting to his mission for you and me. And right after that, captured, falsely accused, betrayed, they pulled out his beard. They beat him. They spit on his face. They stripped him naked. They nailed his hands and feet to the cross and he was lifted up, hanging naked in front of a whole crowd of people, his flesh torn from his body. And, and not just the physical anguish as he poured out his blood. Think of the emotional turmoil in the soul of our Lord as he went through those moments on the cross. Think of the spiritual burden and the weight upon him of the wrath of God towards sinners upon Jesus crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Being shrouded in darkness. And even in the midst of that, being taunted and mocked and tempted, where these guys are surrounding him and saying, oh, if you really are the son of God, come down from the cross and we'll believe you. Oh, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Do you not think in those moments that our Lord Jesus was not tempted to come down from the cross like that in all of his glory, blazing glory, with armies of angels and incinerating those who opposed him? Do you not think he was tempted? And yet he obeyed 
submitted for you and me. Friends, Jesus has been tempted to the uttermost in a way that no other human being has been. Think of it this way, you know, think of some kind of a challenge that you all decide to inflict upon a couple of your pastors and the preaching guests this morning. Uh, I used to weigh about 130 pounds when I left Emmanuel. I weigh much more now. I've been lifting weights and, uh, you know, so let's decide we, we do some kind of competition after the service. You bring a heavy load, let's say 100 pounds, uh, and then you select Pastor Ryan and Pastor Andy and Aubrey, and you say, okay, we're gonna have a competition. Let's see who can carry this load of 100 pounds all the way to Cincinnati. And so we go. And, you know, I probably walk for 20 minutes, and then I see a barbecue restaurant, and I decide I'm done. <laughs> and, and then, you know, Ryan, Ryan, yeah, he, 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 he's strong. He begins to pray and, and persevere. Uh, and he keeps going, you know, uh, he's, he's, he's done drilling for oil and stuff in his past. And, and then he makes it, you know, just outside the border of Louisville. And then it's like, it's too much. I'm just going to go home and pray and ask for forgiveness. <laughs> and then Andy, Andy, now Andy, you know, hey, slow and steady wins the race. Right? <laughs> he goes all the way to Cincinnati with 100 pounds on his back. Sweat dripping down that mustache. A man's man. And then he lays it down at Cincinnati and says, it is finished. Who do you think knows the full weight of that load? Well, in this case, the answer would be Pastor Andy. Because Ryan and I, Ryan and I gave up, you see. We gave up too early. We don't know what that load feels like after you've walked for 30 hours. But Andy does. And in much the same way, dear friends, more than anyone else, Jesus knows the full weight of temptation because he has borne the load which is greatest. You see, all of us give up, we give in, we stumble, we fall, we're tempted a little bit, and then we say, oh, we're done. But Jesus did not. He kept on till the very end. And as the greatest load of temptation was upon his shoulders, he submitted to his father until he said, it is finished, it is done for you and me. And therefore the author says, since Jesus has endured suffering and temptation at its greatest force, at its greatest weight, he is able, get this, he is able to sympathize with you in your temptation more than any other of your fellow sinners and sufferers ever can. He can sympathize with you more than any pastor, any human being, any friend, anyone who's walking through what you're walking through. Jesus can sympathize and he says, I don't despise you. I don't look down on you. I love you. Come to me. Come to me, I will help you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle and humble in heart. How should we respond to so great a Savior? How should we respond? 
Friends, that leads to our second command in this text. We saw our first command to hold fast our confession. We saw two reasons for the commands that we are given, that our high priest has passed through the heavens and that he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And now we see this command. We must draw near with confidence. We must draw near with confidence. Verse 16, let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And of course, this command is closely related to the first command. How do we hold fast our confession? Well, we are strengthened to hold fast our confession by drawing near with confidence. We can come to him boldly with confidence. Dear friend, it doesn't matter if you've blown it. It doesn't matter if you've fallen down. It doesn't matter if you're stumbling, if you feel like you've drifted or wandered far off. It doesn't matter if you missed your quiet time for the last week or the last month. Maybe you think, I'm not worthy, but Jesus says, come. And, and we don't need to take you know, one little scared little step and, and another, another little nerve-wracking step. Oh, we can just run into his arms, into the arms of our dear Savior. Jesus calls you, come. Draw near. There is grace here for sinners. There is mercy in our tender-hearted high priest. What does it mean to draw near? Well, I think, first of all, the primary reference to drawing near is a reference to corporate worship. So if you look in the book of Leviticus, from which Hebrews draws, the phrase draw near, the command to draw near, is a call to the people to assemble and come into God's presence. And, and so this corporate worship gathering is where we primarily draw near, that we come to church. And sometimes people say, oh, I'm too sinful to go to church. That's like saying I'm too sick to go to the hospital. This is where we find grace and mercy to help in time of need. To draw near also means to boldly approach in prayer. That's the other referent of the phrase, draw near. That we can come boldly with our need, in our weakness, with all kinds of requests. Jesus is praying for us and he calls us to pray through him, to him, to run to him. And he promises, dear friends, help for a needy time. Did you say that? Did you see that in verse 16? Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you're struggling, if you're suffocating, if you're stumbling, falling, failing, if it feels like the darkness will not lift, draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. There is mercy, forgiveness of all our sin. There is grace. And that grace, my friends, is a sustaining, empowering grace. You will receive the grace that you need to get you through whatever you're going through right now. Whatever the needy time, there's grace to help in time of need. So what does the needy time look like for you right now? 
it can fall in many different categories, right? Maybe you're going through a time of affliction, whether that's affliction in your health, some kind of bodily ailment that just doesn't seem to go away, or financial struggles, the loss of your job. Maybe you are going through the affliction of grief, the loss of someone really dear to you. And I remember losing my father at the end of 2020 and uh, just how difficult that was. There's grace to help in your affliction. Even to the hour of your own death, when the affliction and the temptation is greatest, he will be there. He is there now to strengthen you. Maybe your needy time is a season of persecution. Are you facing the rejection of family members, of friends for following Jesus? Maybe you need to make a costly decision or take a costly stand at your workplace that will cost you greatly for your faith in Christ. Grace to help for your needy time. Maybe your needy time is one of depression, a season of thick and overwhelming darkness where you feel demotivated, weary, just worn out, where you feel like you're struggling just to even get out of bed in the morning. Dear friend, I know what that's like. I've been there. There's grace to help in time of need. There is a balm for every sorrow in our merciful high priest. Maybe your needy time is one of transition. You know, and we don't often think of that as a needy time, but think of all the uncertainty that goes on in a season of transition, not knowing what comes next, of feeling like things are not in your control, of moving out to some strange and difficult place where you haven't been before. Grace to help in a needy time. And of course, maybe particularly your needy time, your needy season is a time of temptation. Have you grown weary? Are you being tempted to forsake your faith? Have you wandered so far and drifted so far that you don't know how to find your way back? Maybe you're flirting with a sin that you need to cut off and pluck out this morning. Whether it's that falsehood that you're tempted to live in, or that person you've been wrongfully tempted to lust after, or the fear of man and people-pleasing and anxiety that keeps you crippled, or the bitterness and discontent that is growing in your heart and gnawing at your soul. In every temptation, dear brother, dear sister, grace to help in time of need. Flee from the sin that so easily entangles and run into the arms of your Savior. Come to Him. Draw near to Him. And maybe you're here this morning and you have never drawn near to this Christ. You don't know the mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus. If that's you, I want to speak to you, dear friend. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He took on our flesh he died on the cross, poured out his blood, bore the penalty of the wrath of God, of the judgment that sinners deserve, so that whoever repents of sin and trusts in him 
Whoever draws near to him, whoever flees to him, will have full forgiveness of sin and eternal life and grace that transforms you now and forever and a heavenly home where he awaits you with open arms. So if you're here and you have never drawn near to Jesus, I want to speak to you, dear friend. I want you to hear not my voice, but his voice, the voice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, speaking to you from the scriptures this morning and calling you to flee your sin and draw near, run into his arms. Grace to transform your life dear friend, today. Brothers and sisters, Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. All of them. And he calls us, draw near. There is so much mercy, so much grace in our tender-hearted, compassionate high priest the Son of God who suffered for you, who died for you, dear Christian, even now, even now, is praying for you. And he calls you to come to him. You know, the Christian life is hard. The road is long. There are many temptations to give up along the way. And we are often faced, just like the people who originally heard Hebrews preached, we are faced with the question that they were faced with in the midst of all of the pressure and trials. Is it worth it to be a Christian? Is it worth it to be a Christian? The author of Hebrews answers that question. He answered it for them. He answers it for us with one word. Just one word, Christ. We have Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for so great and merciful a high priest. Help us, Lord, to draw near with confidence to receive mercy and find the grace that we need, the help that we need in our needy time. Help us fix our eyes on our Savior, in whose name we pray.